0: section forty one of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter Ten: the age of romanticism eighteen hundred to eighteen fifty the second creative period of english literature the first half of the nineteenth century records the triumph of romanticism in literature and of democracy in government and the two movements are so closely associated in so many nations and in so many periods of history that one must wonder if there be not some relation of cause and effect between them just as we understand the tremendous energizing influence of puritanism in the matter of english liberty by remembering that the common people had begun to read and that their book was the bible so we may understand this age of popular government by remembering that the chief subject of romantic literature was the essential nobleness of common men and the value of the individual as we read now that brief portion of history which lies between the declaration of independence seventeen seventy six and the english reform bill of eighteen thirty two we are in the presence of such mighty political upheavals that the age of revolution is the only name by which we can adequately characterize it its great historic movements become intelligible only when we read what was written in this period for the french revolution and the american commonwealth as well as the establishment of a true democracy in england by the reform bill were the inevitable results of ideas which literature had spread rapidly through the civilized world liberty is fundamentally an ideal and that ideal beautiful inspiring compelling as a loved banner in the wind was kept steadily before men's minds by a multitude of books and pamphlets as far apart as Burns's poems and thomas paine's Rights of man all read eagerly by the common people all proclaiming the dignity of common life and all uttering the same passionate cry against every form of class or caste oppression first the dream the ideal in some human soul then the written word which proclaims it and impresses other minds with its truth and beauty then the united and determined effort of men to make the dream a reality that seems to be a fair estimate of the part that literature plays even in our political progress historical summary the period we are considering begins in the latter half of the reign of george the third and ends with the accession of victoria in eighteen thirty seven when on a foggy morning in november seventeen eighty three king george entered the house of lords and in a trembling voice recognized the independence of the united states of america he unconsciously proclaimed the triumph of that free government by free men which has been the ideal of english literature for more than a thousand years though it was not till eighteen thirty two when the reform bill became the law of the land that england herself learned the lesson taught her by america and became the democracy of which her writers had always dreamed the french revolution the half century between these two events is one of great turmoil yet of steady advance in every department of english life the storm center of the political unrest was the french revolution that frightful uprising which proclaimed the natural rights of man and the abolition of class distinctions its effect on the whole civilized world is beyond computation patriotic clubs and societies multiplied in england all asserting the doctrine of liberty equality fraternity the watchwords of the revolution young england led by pitt the younger hailed the new french republic and offered it friendship old england which pardons no revolutions but her own looked with horror on the turmoil in france and misled by burke and the nobles of the realm forced the two nations into war even pitt saw a blessing in this at first because the sudden zeal for fighting a foreign nation which by some horrible perversion is generally called patriotism might turn men's thoughts from their own to their neighbors affairs and so prevent a threatened revolution at home economic conditions the causes of this threatened revolution were not political but economic by her invention in steel and machinery and by her monopoly of the carrying trade england had become the workshop of the world her wealth had increased beyond her wildest dreams but the unequal distribution of that wealth was a spectacle to make angels weep the invention of machinery at first threw thousands of skilled hand workers out of employment in order to protect a few agriculturists heavy duties were imposed on corn and wheat and bread rose to famine prices just when laboring men had the least money to pay for it there followed a curious spectacle while england increased in wealth and spent vast sums to support her army and subsidize her allies in europe and while nobles landowners manufacturers and merchants lived in increasing luxury a multitude of skilled laborers were clamoring for work fathers sent their wives and little children into the mines and factories where sixteen hours labor would hardly pay for the daily bread and in every large city were riotous mobs made up chiefly of hungry men and women it was this unbearable economic condition and not any political theory as burke supposed which occasioned the danger of another english revolution it is only when we remember these conditions that we can understand two books adam smith's wealth of nations and thomas paine's rights of man which can hardly be considered as literature but which exercised an enormous influence in england smith was a scottish thinker who wrote to uphold the doctrine that labor is the only source of a nation's wealth and that any attempt to force labor into unnatural channels or to prevent it by protective duties from freely obtaining the raw materials for its industry is unjust and destructive paine was a curious combination of jekyll and hyde shallow and untrustworthy personally but with a passionate devotion to popular liberty his rights of man published in london in seventeen ninety one was like one of burns lyric outcries against institutions which oppressed humanity coming so soon after the destruction of the bastille it added fuel to the flames kindled in england by the french revolution the author was driven out of the country on the curious ground that he endangered the english constitution but not until his book had gained a wide sale and influence reforms all these dangers real and imaginary passed away when england turned from the affairs of france to remedy her own economic conditions the long continental war came to an end with napoleon's overthrow at waterloo in eighteen fifteen and england having gained enormously in prestige abroad now turned to the work of reform at home the destruction of the african slave trade the mitigation of horribly unjust laws which included poor debtors and petty criminals in the same class the prevention of child labor the freedom of the press the extension of manhood suffrage the abolition of restrictions against catholics in parliament the establishment of hundreds of popular schools under the leadership of andrew bell and joseph lancaster these are but a few of the reforms which mark the progress of civilization in a single half century when england in eighteen thirty three proclaimed the emancipation of all slaves in all her colonies she unconsciously proclaimed her final emancipation from barbarism romantic enthusiasm literary characteristics of the age it is intensely interesting to note how literature at first reflected the political turmoil of the age and then when the turmoil was over and england began her mighty work of reform how literature suddenly developed a new creative spirit which shows itself in the poetry of wordsworth coleridge byron shelley keats and in the prose of scott jane austen lamb and de quincey a wonderful group of writers whose patriotic enthusiasm suggests the elizabethan days and whose genius has caused their age to be known as the second creative period of our literature thus in the early days when old institutions seemed crumbling with the bastille coleridge and salvey formed their youthful scheme of pantisocracy on the banks of the susquehanna and ideal commonwealth in which the principles of moore's utopia should be put in practice even wordsworth fired with political enthusiasm could write bliss was it in that dawn to be alive but to be young was very heaven the essence of romanticism was it must be remembered that literature must reflect all that is spontaneous and unaffected in nature and in man and be free to follow its own fancy in its own way we have already noted this characteristic in the work of the elizabethan dramatists who followed their own genius in opposition to all the laws of the critics in coleridge we see this independence expressed in kubla khan and the ancient mariner two dream pictures one of the populous orient the other of the lonely sea in wordsworth this literary independence led him inward to the heart of common things following his own instinct as shakespeare does he too finds tongues in trees books in the running brooks sermons in stones and good in everything and so more than any other writer of the age he invests the common life of nature and the souls of common men and women with glorious significance these two poets coleridge and wordsworth best represent the romantic genius of the age in which they lived though scott had a greater literary reputation and byron and shelley had larger audiences an age of poetry the second characteristic of this age is that it is emphatically an age of poetry the previous century with its practical outlook on life was largely one of prose but now as in the elizabethan age the young enthusiasts turned as naturally to poetry as a happy man to singing the glory of the age is in the poetry of scott wordsworth coleridge byron shelley Keats, moore and salvey of its prose works those of scott alone have attained a very wide reading though the essays of charles lamb and the novels of jane austen have slowly won for their authors a secure place in the history of our literature coleridge and southey who with wordsworth form the trio of so-called lake poets wrote far more prose than poetry and southey's prose is much better than his verse it was characteristic of the spirit of this age so different from our own that southey could say that in order to earn money he wrote in verse what would otherwise have been better written in prose women as novelists it was during this period that woman assumed for the first time an important place in our literature probably the chief reason for this interesting phenomenon lies in the fact that woman was for the first time given some slight chance of education of entering into the intellectual life of the race and as is always the case when woman is given anything like a fair opportunity she responded magnificently a secondary reason may be found in the nature of the age itself which was intensely emotional the french revolution stirred all europe to its depths and during the following half-century every great movement in literature as in politics and religion was characterized by strong emotion which is all the more noticeable by contrast with the cold formal satiric spirit of the early eighteenth century as woman is naturally more emotional than man it may well be that the spirit of this emotional age attracted her and gave her the opportunity to express herself in literature as all strong emotions tend to extremes the age produced a new type of novel which seems rather hysterical now but which in its own day delighted multitudes of readers whose nerves were somewhat excited and who reveled in bogey stories of supernatural terror mrs Anne radcliffe seventeen sixty four eighteen twenty three was one of the most successful writers of this school of exaggerated romance her novels with their azure-eyed heroines haunted castles trap-doors bandits abductions rescues in the nick of time and a general medley of overwrought joys and horrors note mrs radcliffe's best work is the mysteries of udolpho this is the story of a tender heroine shut up in a gloomy castle over her broods the terrible shadow of an ancestor's crime there are the usual goose-flesh accompaniments of haunted rooms secret doors sliding panels mysterious figures behind old pictures and a subterranean passage leading to a vault dark and creepy as a tomb here the heroine finds a chest with blood-stained papers by the light of a flickering candle she reads with chills and shivering the record of long-buried crimes at the psychological moment the little candle suddenly goes out then out of the darkness a cold clammy hand foolish as such stories seem to us now they show first a wild reaction from the skepticism of the preceding age and second a development of the medieval romance of adventure only the adventure is here inward rather than outward it faces a ghost instead of a dragon and for this work a nun with her beads is better than a knight in armor so heroines abound instead of heroes the age was too educated for medieval monsters and magic but not educated enough to reject ghosts and other bogies were immensely popular not only with the crowd of novel readers but also with the men of unquestioned literary genius like scott and byron in marked contrast to these extravagant stories is the enduring work of jane austen with her charming descriptions of everyday life and of maria edgeworth whose wonderful pictures of irish life suggested to walter scott the idea of writing his scottish romances two other women who attained a more or less lasting fame were hannah more poet dramatist and novelist and jane porter whose scottish chiefs and thaddeus of warsaw are still in demand in our libraries besides these were fanny burney madame d'arblay and several other writers whose works in the early part of the nineteenth century raised woman to the high place in literature which she has ever since maintained the modern magazines in this age literary criticism became firmly established by the appearance of such magazines as the edinburgh review eighteen o two the quarterly review eighteen o eight blackwood's magazine eighteen seventeen the westminster review eighteen twenty four the spectator eighteen twenty eight the athenium eighteen twenty eight the Fraser's magazine eighteen thirty these magazines edited by such men as francis jeffrey john wilson who is known to us as christopher north and john gibson lockhart who gave us the life of scott exercised an immense influence on all subsequent literature at first their criticisms were largely destructive as when geoffrey hammered scott wordsworth and byron most unmercifully and lockhart could find no good in either keats or tennyson but with added wisdom criticism assumed its true function of construction and when these magazines began to seek and to publish the works of unknown writers like hazlitt lamb and Leigh hunt they discovered the chief mission of the modern magazine which is to give every writer of ability the opportunity to make his work known to the world end of section forty one